Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your dreams. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we chat with Alex Kelly about making insulin cheaper with biohacking. But first up, here's the news of the new crime of secretly using other people's computers to mine cryptocurrency for you. Cryptojacking. You've been mined. Criminals inserted JavaScript software into ads they paid YouTube to display that would use millions of viewers' browsers to mine cryptocurrency for them, literally making them money. It's a crime known as cryptojacking. The criminals modified JavaScript code from the company CoinHive. CoinHive's idea was an alternative to using advertising to fund content creation like podcasts, videos, and blogging. Instead of showing people ads, you could instead show them a button they could consent to push that would use your computer's CPU and electricity to run the algorithms that would process cryptocurrency transactions and reward you with new crypto coins. Or you could just embed another version of the code to run straight away, but warn people at the top of the page so they could opt out. Either way, it's intended to be consensual. Bitcoin can only be mined with farms of expensive special purpose computers, but it's not the only cryptocurrency. Ethereum can only be mined with an array of top-end graphics cards costing several thousand dollars. However, less popular crypto coins like Monero can be slowly mined with home computer and phone CPUs. Of course, you need a lot of computers running the JavaScript miner for this approach to pay anything more than a few cents. The criminals took CoinHive's code and modified it so that it never asks for your consent. It just quietly steals time on your computer to run its self-serving algorithms. The malware code ran in double-click ads on YouTube for almost a week before they were detected and taken down. Streaming sites are ideal for this kind of attack because people spend a lot of time with one web page open. Cryptojacking software has also been discovered running on government and other websites guaranteed to have millions of users. Up to 80% of your computer's processing power would be hijacked to make money for the criminals, slowing you right down. Breaking into thousands of web pages is a lot of work, so the criminals found a quicker way. They noticed a lot of web pages use JavaScript programs from the websites of other organizations. All they had to do was target one of these outside organizations offering JavaScript programs, change the software they serve up, 
and then thousands of websites would use that changed code, which would run the cryptojacking code they'd now hidden inside every page. This has successfully targeted over 4,000 websites that we know of, including Australian, British and American government websites, which have millions of readers every day. They targeted a JavaScript library from the company TextHelp, called Browse Aloud. This script makes a web page accessible to people with reading disorders like dyslexia and people with low vision. Browse Aloud also offers a toolbar to convert the web page to voice and translate to other languages. All you have to do is copy and paste their JavaScript code to your web page. The Information Commissioner's Office, ICO, are the UK's independent authority set up to uphold information rights in the public interest, promoting openness by public bodies and data privacy for individuals. The ICO and the US courts had Browse Aloud installed, which put CoinHive cryptocurrency miners on their web pages. And the UK General Medical Council, the NHS, and the Northern Power Grid's websites. In Australia, the Queensland Government websites and the Victorian Parliament websites were compromised with a Browse Aloud attack. Texthelp were finally notified and the code was removed. Webmasters can now add a little extra code to their JavaScript to verify that the instructions they're loading from third-party sites hasn't been tampered with. Once you can trick websites into loading your JavaScript code, you can make them do anything you want. It could have been much worse. Connecting to Wi-Fi in a Starbucks cafe may also lead to cryptojacking. At several of the Starbucks coffee shops in Buenos Aires outlets, customers experienced a 10-second delay while connecting to the free Wi-Fi, during which it loaded the Monero mining code and hid the window in the background. While the customers browsed the not-so-free Wi-Fi, they were mining for whoever put the code into the web page. You can block cryptojacking malware with open-source browser extensions such as NoCoin, MinerBlock, and BitBlock. If you decide that you don't mind a particular site borrowing your CPU because they ask nicely, and you want to support them, then you can whitelist them temporarily or permanently in the extensions. Many ad-blocking extensions will also block cryptojacking. Futurist Mark Pesci tweeted about his experiment with running the CoinHive browser mining code on a private web page he created for his own use, so that the unused CPU cycles of his spare phones and computers might generate some income. I decided to try it myself. I have an 8-core desktop computer that's only a few years old, an old laptop, two old phones, and an iPad. I don't have a graphics card. I embedded the code on a web page and set the computers to mine the Monero cryptocurrency in the background. After two days, I'd mined about 20 cents worth of Monero, according to the exchange rate. I calculated that after a year, I would have earned about $20 of Monero, if the price stays the same. However, I couldn't touch it, because CoinHive won't pay you the money until you mine a minimum of half a Monero which is worth about $200 this week. This would take me 10 years. And even then, 
CoinHive will take a 30% cut as their fee. Mining Monero in your own browser on a desktop, a laptop, two old phones and an iPad is not a way to get rich. Giving your computers a hobby is okay, but the extra computations also use extra electricity. And that can be expensive in a country like Australia. However, some people are buying up old and dirt cheap new phones and adding them to a phone farm. They run a Monero mining app on all the phones, which are all on the local Wi-Fi network and all powered with USB cables. They might run upwards of 20 phones in parallel. It's still a very slow way to get rich, although it's much more affordable than buying mining rigs with lots of expensive graphics cards or dedicated mining CPUs. Of course, the person who put out the mining app is creaming off his 30% fee from a large number of people running a large number of phone farms. Even better, that company isn't paying you your money as you mine it. They're accumulating all of that cryptocurrency in their software wallets until it reaches whatever payout level they've set for their users. Until that time, the fruits of your phone farm's labour is all theirs. Thousands of people never making enough for a payout is a very nice payout for the app owners. As for getting people to voluntarily click a button on a browser to donate some of their spare CPU cycles to generate some crypto coins as an intentional donation, instead of looking at advertising or clicking through affiliate sales links or simply making a PayPal donation, would you click on the button to run the code and donate CPU cycles in the background if I put the mining software on the Diffusion Radio website? Purely as an experiment, of course. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Millions of people suffer from diabetes, and all of them need regular insulin injections to stay alive. Yet, the price of insulin has gone up and up and up. How can we make insulin affordable to everyone who needs it? I went to a talk at the Biofoundry in Redfern on solving the problem with biohacking. Alex Kelly is a molecular biologist and university student currently working at the Biofoundry, an open-source science lab in Sydney. He's working on projects such as open-source insulin and the design of genetic modification kits. After his talk, I began by asking him what does DISCO stand for? DISCO stands for Designing Insulin to be Single Chain and Open Source. And the basic aim of the project is to ensure that the price of insulin across the world is no longer continues to rise at an absurd rate and can actually come down to a level that people can afford. Uh, this uh, ties into the project. We are open source because we're trying to provide the technologies free of charge to any manufacturers that might want to produce insulin. And the single chain side of things involves designing an analog, which is a type of insulin very similar to insulin, but is not covered under current legal patents. 
Just how fast is the cost of insulin going up? Uh, it's increased by about 300% over the last decade, which is pretty insane considering that it's made by bacteria, which really only require a bit of yeast and protein to be paid. And the main reasons for the increase can mostly be tied to the fact that three companies own 92% of the market. So insulin was first used as a treatment... 1923? Yeah, 1923 was the first time that human insulin was purified, and it was purified by three Canadian scientists, and they sold the patent for three Canadian dollars, which was is pretty insane considering the price of insulin is up to about $600 for a month's supply now. Yeah, and, and just to make it clear, that was the purification of insulin, not actually manufacturing insulin itself. The manufacture of insulin using bacteria was developed during the early 1980s. So it should be well and truly out of patent by now. Yes, all of the patents expired by the late 1990s. And so in order to overcome that, the pharmaceutical companies developed insulin analogues. Basically, human insulin has been very slightly modified so it can be covered under a new legal loophole. And that allows them to continue to maintain their monopoly on the market. So that's evergreening, where they continually renew the patents and change it just a tiny little bit and then resell it. Exactly. That's exactly how it goes. It's a sort of form of planned obsolescence, but for the protein market. So you may be introducing something that could produce some competition in the market? Yeah, the aim is to try and bring competition back into the market by allowing generic manufacturers to enter it. Currently, they're crowded out by the perceived difficulty and expense of producing human insulin. So our hope is that by providing the bacteria they require and the full knowledge of the manufacturing process, that they would see it as a far more financially viable option to enter this market and provide competition to the three big pharma companies that currently control it. You're working with groups in countries around the world. Yeah, so this project originally started in America, in Oakland, California, uh, with Counterculture Labs. And since then, uh, when I contacted them at the start of this year, they thought that it would be a good idea to try and set up a larger international collaboration, not just Australia and America. So we've um, actually been contacted by people all over the world who are really enthusiastic who and to whom this means a lot to them. A lot of them have a family member with diabetes or someone who's very affected by the disease. So we um, we now have teams both in America and Australia, but also Europe uh, in Ghent there. And we also have some teams joining us from Brazil, Cameroon, and now India. So our hope is that by taking in all these international perspectives, we might be able to find a solution which works for everyone and not just for first world countries or, com- or countries with a pharmaceutical benefit scheme. You're working with iGEM. Yeah, so the International Genetically Engineered Machine, or iGEM, is this amazing American competition which tries to bring teams, synthetic biology teams from all around the world to develop open source solutions to modern problems. We saw some amazing teams there this year working on antibiotic resistance, which was the big key term because that has the potential to affect all 7 billion people on the planet. But, you know, diabetes does affect over 100 million people, so it's a pretty important problem as well. And we think that the 50 million people who can't afford insulin at the moment need to be cared for. Those people, are they just going to die? 
If you're, a if you're a type 1 diabetic and you don't have access to insulin, yes, you will die, but you'll have to go through several years of painful amputations, dialysis, and necrosis of your extremities. So it's an extremely painful way to go and also adds big expenses to the medical system if diabetes is left unchecked. 3 in 10 people with type 2 diabetes also require insulin or they will go through the same symptoms. Both of the diseases come from a different problem but lead to relatively similar results. The insulin that you're making, you called it Winsulin? <laughs> so we actually produced two kinds of insulin. The first one is regular human insulin, which is structurally similar to the generic product you would find in the supermarket today. The second one we developed in order to have our own analogue free from the legal protections of patents, we called Winsulin. And this is a single-chain insulin, very similar to human insulin, and should, should hopefully have the exact same effect in the body. We require clinical testing to figure out whether that's the case case. But the idea is that Winchelin would also be able to enter the market as an effective product and potentially one which is either fast acting or slow acting, which would cover a further market niche that we might want to cover. This project was started in the US? Yep. It was started in the US by Counterculture Labs. Anthony DeFranco and Michael Arndt were two of the main leads on that, but we also have some really excellent researchers such as Juan Getz. And the expertise and the research that they provided me when I first started this project was what really got me enthusiastic and allowed me to then share that with the people here in Australia who wanted to work on it. So it, re it really is an example of international collaboration done right. The idea is that you've got to get the bacteria to produce insulin, mm -hmm. and then how would you purify that? So in our gene that we used to code the bacteria to produce the insulin, we included a 6-histidine tag, and this has a specific charge that we can use to make it bond to a nickel agarose column. And then we wash that nickel agarose col column with a steady stream of increasing, increasing concentration of buffer, and that will purify the insulin off the column and leave us with a purified product. We haven't managed to completely uh, nail out the process yet, but right. we're getting there, yeah. Are you having to kill the bacteria to get the insulin out, or are you, is it excreting it for you like a cow? Yeah. So we've actually designed several different expression systems. Our two E. coli expression systems both require to kill the bacteria in order to purify the insulin. Our third one uses a bacterial strain called Bacillus subtilis, and that one actually excretes the insulin into the media surrounding it. And that does make purification significantly cheaper and easier. So that was one of the reasons we tried that, and we did actually get some success with that process. How cold does the insulin need to be to store and be transported? So currently the industry standard requires four degrees cold chain distribution, so it needs to be refrigerated for the entire time. We have come across in our research of insulin the fact that this might not be necessary and might be an extreme added cost to the transportation of insulin that leads to increased expenses, especially in rural areas in countries where distribution is really hard, such as Central Africa and and um, regional Australia. All of these are places where cold chain distribution, if it was unnecessary, could cutting it out could save a very large amount of money. So we're currently researching what the effects of temperature on insulin is and how temperature sensitive the vials actually are. Because if we could remove that expensive step from the process, that right there is a very large amount of the additional expense cut out. You mentioned that the genes were activated by lactose. Yes, so the... 
The plasmid that we used to code the gene into the bacteria uh, uses the LAC repressor and LAC activator to, or the LAC operon in order to tell, tell the cell when it needs to start producing the insulin. So we provide it with a either lactose or IPTG, which is lactose substitute, which isn't broken down by the cell. And that's basically the chemical on switch that tells the cell now it's time to start producing insulin. The insulin itself can actually be quite toxic to the cells in higher concentrations. So uh, there's some important playing around with the initial concentration of the bacteria and then the final concentration to ensure that we produce the most the uh, as effectively as possible and this 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 comes in uh, to a further layer of complexity when we start building big uh, reactor fermenters fermentation systems maybe 50,000 liters and we have to ensure that the cells are constantly provided with the optimal growth conditions to produce the most amount of insulin in your talk you also talked about antibody resistance why would your insulin producing bacteria need to be resistant to antibiotics so the reason we uh, i might rephrase that question the we use the anti-insulin antibodies to test the shape of the insulin because uh, insulin has to have a very specific shape and be folded correctly into the right conformation in order to be biologically active. So we use the anti-insulin antibody which bonds only to insulin in order to test the insulin's shape and ensure that it is going to fit into the cells, into the antigen of the body correctly. In order for people to use insulin, they need to test their insulin levels and they often also might need to use an insulin pump. Yes. And those things will have patents as well. So most of the current pharmaceutical companies that manufacture insulin have their own insulin pump, and that insulin pump is matched to a specific brand of insulin, which really just ends up being an an additional barrier to entry to anyone else entering the market, because unless your insulin perfectly matches the competitor, a user will not be able to use their insulin pump, which is quite an expensive piece of equipment, with your insulin. So part of our development process involves the creation of an open source insulin pump that would ideally be able to be used with any insulin, or at least just our open source insulins. And so we have a manufacturing team who are working on that concept as well and trying to develop one of those. So it's it's almost like the inkjet companies having a cartridge that you have to use their cartridge or their printer won't work. Yes, it's exactly like that. And there are certainly many, many users around the world, especially in poorer countries, who will still use a needle to inject their insulin and do basic calculations on the back of their hand to figure out exactly how much insulin they require. Um, but obviously that's quite a challenge to quality of life and um, and mistakes with that will lead to a hypoglycemic or hypoglycemic state and then that can be quite negative for the user as well so it's important that we consider all faculties of the diabetic treatment system in order to be able to best service the people who are suffering uh, and unable to afford this another example of that is diabetic test strips which help you determine what your current blood sugar is um, which are also extremely expensive and um, and failing to use these can mean that you drastically miscalculate how much insulin you require For people in third world countries, is there a chance that they'll be able to make their own insulin using the information from the project? So uh, acting under Australian regulations, we have to be extremely careful about uh, trying to work on self-produced insulin, or as we like to call it, bathtub insulin. However, people in third world countries, uh, obviously, when it's a life or death decision or a a family member is is, um, facing a life or death decision, the regulations of these first world governments don't matter too much to them. So 
we are looking at working with some partners, our partners in Cameroon, specifically in Africa. Our, he has a father who has diabetes and has had to have his foot amputated and has to have dialysis once every week. And so if we could help him be able to produce his own insulin using a purification system, then that would be extremely useful. What we have to do is ensure that we're working within the laws of Australia and, and Cameroon to ensure we're not providing someone with unsafe medical equipment that might lead to their ultimate demise. And it, obviously it is quite risky, all of these things not working within the full medical approval system, which is what we're trying to do here at Biofoundry. So we have to do this cautiously, but it, it, it would of course be extremely valuable to be able to provide this service to them without all the additional costs that come with having to do the regulation. So when the project is complete, if you were to, if you or someone else were to set up manufacturing this, what would it cost? So we're looking at a minimum of about five to ten million dollars for a manufacturing facility. That's for the fermentation equipment and all the way up to purification, and that would probably be able to provide enough for um, a, a million to two million people. But obviously, there's a lot more people worldwide who have this, and it's an extremely quickly growing market. We've also seen a 300% increase in the amount of people using insulin worldwide in the last decade. So some factories, for example, one being, one's being set up in India and China right now uh, have a rough estimated cost of about 500 million US dollars. So the scaling on this could go almost anywhere, which is why we ourselves are not particularly interested in the manufacturing market. We're more interested in open source solutions that might allow other people to enter the market. So rather than being the generic manufacturer, we would approach other large generic manufacturers with a large amount of capital to be able to invest in a new manufacturing facility and provide them with the tools they need to do so with the minimum amount of costs and expense. And if people would like to join the project, how would they do that? So all you have to do is find us on Facebook. You can find Biofoundry or Biohack Sydney, which are the two groups for Biofoundry. You can also find the uh, Oligo to Insulin group once you join one of those, or just mention that you're interested in the insulin collaboration. Uh, if you're an in, uh, if you want to like Open Insulin as well on Facebook, those are the original starters of the project, and we're very good friends with them. Uh, and if you're an international collaborator, a lab wanting to join from somewhere in the world, then you're welcome to get in contact with us as well. And we're we're looking for new labs to join us. Mumbai and in India is the only just contacted us this week and we're really excited to get to start working with them. Well, Alex, thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure chatting to you. That was molecular biologist Alex Kelly, making insulin cheaper with Disco. You can watch a video of this interview on the Diffusion Science Radio YouTube page. There'll be a link on the show notes. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your stories, contributions, opinions, suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and support the show so that I can make more episodes. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of incomatech.com. Sound and fact-checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambaka Valley, and 3MBR in the Valley Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. 
Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography, collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.